I want to begin this morning with two distinct teaching passages of Jesus, one from Matthew and the other from John, both located in the final week of Jesus's ministry when he was in Jerusalem for the Passover, where he was finally rejected by the Jews and handed over to the Romans in order to put him to death. The first is the parable of the tenants. It's found in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33, where we read, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and he dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. A few days later, Jesus was in the upper room, this time with his disciples, and he spoke again, again using the imagery of the vine or the vineyard. This passage is found in John 15, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now these two passages are addressed to two different groups of people. The first to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, the second to the disciples. And thus they have two different points of emphases. The corporate rejection of Israel in the first, okay, God's going to take the vineyard away from you, Israel, and he's going to give it to a a people producing the fruit thereof. He's going to take away the kingdom from you, and he's going to give it to the Gentiles. The point of the second, or the emphasis of the second, is on the individual rejection of fruitless Christians, right? Any any so-called Christian that does not bear fruit because it does not abide in me, that just sits there like a dead branch... The father's going to cut off, he's going to take away, he's going to throw into the fire, and it's going to get burned. So different groups, different points of emphases. Nevertheless, I think the similarities between the two are striking, and I think both inform Paul's teaching in Romans 11, particularly verses 16 to 24. 
So let me point out three important points that are found in both Matthew 21 and John 15, and then we'll recur again in Romans 11. Three important points. Number one, in both passages, you will note that there is only one true people of God. In Matthew 21, there is one vineyard, one kingdom. It's taken away from the Jewish people because of their unbelief and their rejection of the Son. And it's given to the Gentiles who will believe and will bear the fruit of the kingdom. In John 15, there is one true vine. That vine is Christ. Those branches that are vitally, that is in a living way, attached to the vine, bear fruit and remain. Those that do not abide in the vine and are just dead branches hanging on, they're cut off, they're thrown away, and they're burned. Okay, so one parable has either, or not one parable, one person has either received the vineyard or the kingdom, or he has not. And one is either in the vine, that is in Christ, or he is not. There is not some other kingdom that he can belong to, and there's not some other vine that he can be attached to. There is one kingdom, one vine, one Christ, one people of God. Okay, second point. In both passages, the penalty for rejecting the son is dire. It's ultimate. Those tenants who reject the son in Matthew 21 are put to a miserable death, said the Pharisees who didn't know Jesus was talking about them. Those branches that do not abide in the vine are cut off, cast into the fire, and burned. What's the point? There is no salvation outside of Christ. None. Third, in both passages, what the Father's looking for is fruit. And this fruit is produced by receiving and obeying the Son. No fruit is recognized or received by the Father except that which comes through faith in the Son. Now, both passages, Matthew 21 and John 15, are saying more than this. But these three points seem to summarize Jesus' teaching in each. According to Jesus, there is one covenant of grace and salvation. He is the mediator of that one covenant of salvation, and only those who are united to him by faith are included in that one covenant of salvation. If you understand those central truths of Matthew 21 and John 15, you can understand Romans 11. And you won't go astray into some theology which sees Israel and the church as two fundamentally different people related to God by two fundamentally different covenants. God has one covenant of grace and salvation. It came to the Jews first through Abraham. But they ultimately rejected it and so were rejected by God. It then came to the Gentiles who received it and so are received by God. But there will come a day when the Jews finally receive that one covenant of grace and salvation through that one mediator, Christ Jesus, and then they will once again be accepted by God. And then the end will come. That's basically Paul's point in the second half of Romans 11. The first half, verses 1 to 10, were concerned to show that God had not completely rejected his people, but has always chosen a remnant to believe and to be saved and to carry forward the covenant of grace and salvation through Christ in the midst of the Jewish people. The second half, verses 11 to 32, is concerned to show that God has not finally 
rejected his people, but will one day pour out his grace upon the nation as a whole and will bring them into the covenant of grace and salvation through Christ. In other words, the main thrust of Romans chapter 11 is that the Jewish people, ethnic Israel, are neither completely nor finally rejected, which means that they are for the time being both partially and temporarily rejected. Romans 11 is concerned to explain this strange and sovereign plan of God. In verse 13, Paul began to specifically address the Gentile church. You'll notice he says, now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, right? And he has explained to the Gentiles this strange and sovereign plan of God that is taking place before our eyes in this this present age of redemptive history between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. This is what we studied last week in verses 11 to 15. There are four movements that are occurring in this this last stage of redemptive history. Number one, God rejected Israel. He took the kingdom away from them in order that the Gentiles might be saved. And he gave it to a people bearing the fruit thereof. God rejected Israel in order that the Gentiles might be saved. Number two, the Gentiles are saved in order that Israel might be made jealous. Number three, Israel is made jealous in order that they might be saved. And number four, Israel is saved in order that the dead might be raised. Okay, that's all found in verses 11 to 15. That's what God is doing in this present age. Beginning in verse 16 then, Paul focuses attentions upon the implications of this strange and sovereign plan of God for the church, for us. Today we're going to look at these verses, 16 to 24, and I want to point out three truths, each of which has an implication for the Gentile church in this present age. And so far as I know, Everyone in this church is a Gentile, that is, not ethnically Jewish. And so this passage, if there ever was one in the New Testament, speaks directly to us. Now, even though the ESV, which I'm using right now, places verse 16 in the same paragraph as verses 13 to 15, Most commentators think that verse 16 actually represents the beginning of a new line of thought, and so it should be included with 17 to 24. I agree with that, so we're going to treat verse 16 to, to verse 24 as one unit. Verse 16, I think, provides the main idea for the paragraph that follows. Look there with me. Paul says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, obviously, Paul's employing metaphor here. He's employing imagery, which makes his meaning at first glance kind of obscure. We have to work at it. But if we recognize that these two phrases in verse 16 are parallel to one another, meaning that they they mean the same thing, they just say it in different ways, I think we can get at Paul's point. Dough offered as first fruits is parallel to root in the second phrase. Whole lump in the first is parallel to branches in the second. Okay? So we can learn what the first phrase means if we interpret the second one, and we don't have to interpret the second one because the rest of the paragraph interprets it for us. Branches, for instance, are the branches of the olive tree, and they represent the one covenant people of God. The natural branches of the olive tree are Jews, 
the wild olive shoots are Gentile Christians. The root of the olive tree must then refer to the beginning of this tree, the foundation of the cultivated olive tree, the foundation of the covenant people of God. In other words, it refers to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the root of the tree. I think this is confirmed by Paul's statement in verse 28. As regards election, they, Israel, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the sake of the root So now that we know what the second metaphor means, okay, if the root is holy, the whole thing's holy, we can discern the meaning of the first. The image seems to be drawn from Numbers 15, where the law of the first fruits is established. The basic idea was that, was this, when when the Israelites harvested their grain, the first fruits of that grain were to be made into dough, which was to be baked into bread, which was to be brought before the Lord and offered before him. If therefore the first fruits of the grain were holy to the Lord, then the whole lump of dough out of which it was made or into which it was incorporated is likewise holy. Now the first fruits are parallel in verse 16 to the root. The root are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the lump of dough made from the first fruits is parallel to branches. And the branches, the tree, are the one covenant people of God. But because the metaphor of the olive tree works a lot better for Paul's purpose, that's the one he's going to extend into the paragraph that comes. But we can make the very same point from the first metaphor if we wanted to. Even though some of the dough, so the first fruits are gathered, they're made into a lump of dough, even though some of that dough is cut off and thrown away, and part of another lump is then brought in and incorporated into the original lump, The whole lump is holy because the first fruits are holy. That's Paul's point. But as we'll see, his olive tree imagery works a lot better, and so that's the one he's going to take and run with. The main point of verse 16, whether we're talking about the first fruits and the lump or the root and the branches, is that the whole thing, the, the dough or the tree, is holy by virtue of the original holy seed, whether it's the first fruits or the root. To speak plainly, God has established a covenant with Abraham and with his descendants, a covenant to be their holy God and to make them his holy people. The descendants, therefore, are holy by virtue of their covenantal connection to the holy seed, namely Abraham, who is the root and the first fruits. That's the main point of verse 16. But it raises a very, very important question. Okay? You get, the, you get the main point, verse 16. If the root's holy, the whole thing's holy. If the first fruits are holy, the whole lump's holy. If Abraham's holy, all of his descendants are holy. That's the main point. But the question is raised, who are the descendants? And if verse 16 was all we had, there wasn't anything before or after, Paul's point would seem to be that, well, everyone biologically or ethnically related to Abraham are part of the holy people of God because they're related to Abraham and Abraham's holy. But we know that isn't true because the whole of Romans 9 to 11 exists because that isn't true. Romans 9 to 11 exists because the vast majority of Israel have rejected Christ and therefore have been rejected by God. They're not holy. So Paul goes on, verse 17. 
But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Now, before we establish Paul's main point, let's define our terms once more, just to make sure we know what we're talking about. The natural branches, which are broken off of the olive tree, those are Jewish unbelievers who have rejected Christ and have therefore been rejected by God. The wild olive shoots, which are cut off of a wild olive tree and are grafted into the one cultivated olive tree, those are Gentiles who have been converted to faith in Christ. The olive tree itself is the covenant people of God and the nourishing root, and don't just think the roots down there, think of the trunk as well, the root, the trunk, all one, all one uh, contained in this one word. The nourishing root are the patriarchs to whom the covenant was given. Okay, so those are the terms. What's the point? I'll give you a hint. It's exactly the same point Jesus made in Matthew 21 in the parable of the tenants and John 15 in the parable of the vine and the branches. Let me give it to you in bullet point outline. First, Paul's point is that there is only one olive tree. There is only one covenant people of God. There are not two. There is only one. The olive tree was a recognized Old Testament symbol for Israel. You can see it in Jeremiah 11, Hosea 14, and other places. But notice that belonging to this one olive tree is obviously not a matter of ethnic descent. How do we know that? Because Jews are broken off and Gentiles are grafted in. In other words, membership in the covenant is not a matter of ethnicity. It's a matter of something else. What is that? What is it that defines one's membership in the covenant people, the true Israel of God? Well, on the one hand, Romans 9 to 11 has made clear that membership in the people of God is ultimately determined by God's sovereign election. But from a human perspective, I'm thinking end of Romans 9 here, faith in Christ for justification is the determinative factor. Look again at verse 20 of Romans chapter 11. They were broken off, that is the natural Jewish branches were broken off. Why? Because of unbelief. They didn't believe. And you stand firm. That is, you were grafted in and remain in. How? Through faith. So faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the righteousness of God for all who believe is what determines whether a branch belongs to the olive tree or not, whether one belongs to the true Israel of God, the covenant people, or not. Third, what is the nourishing root of the olive tree? Again, it's the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, mostly Abraham, who received the covenant promise of which only those who believe are a part. In other words, the branches vitally connected to the tree, whether they are natural branches or wild olive shoots, the branches that are connected to the tree are the true descendants of Abraham, not the ones that are not connected, whether they're natural or they're wild. 
Jew or Gentile. Any Jew, any Gentile not connected to the tree are not the children of Abraham. Any Jew or Gentile connected to the tree through faith in Christ are the children of Abraham. Make sense? So note this carefully. There is only one nourishing root. Not two, only one. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's only one olive tree growing up out of that root. The only branches attached to the one olive tree are those that believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the wild branches, Gentile Christians, who are grafted in, have become sharers, see that word? Sharers in the nourishing root, that is the Abrahamic covenant of grace, along with the natural branches that remain, that is the Jewish Christians. Gentile Christians grafted in, Jewish Christians that remain, they are equal sharers in the Abrahamic covenant and all the promises given to Abraham. Now, here's a question you need to ask yourself. So what do we call that body of believers in Jesus Christ in which there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile? What do we call that? We call it the church. According to to Paul, then, the olive tree is the church. The church is the true Israel the only covenant people who receive the promises of Abraham. And that's massively important theology, and it has massive implications for some of the questions I raised in the introduction a couple of weeks ago regarding the church's relation to the Jewish people, their relation to the Jewish state, and their relation to the promised land. All the promises of Abraham, let me be as clear as I can right now, and then we'll unpack this in the weeks to come. All the promises of Abraham belong only to the true sons of Abraham, the spiritual seed. Therefore, if the land of Israel belongs to anyone by by divine right, it belongs to those and only those to whom it was promised, namely those included in the Abrahamic covenant, namely those who believe in Jesus as Messiah. In other words, it belongs to the church, who is the true Israel of God, according to Galatians 6.16. The kingdom has been taken away from the Jewish people, and it has been given to a people who will bear the fruit thereof, namely Christians. A people identified not by ethnic descent from Abraham, but by the faith of Abraham. And that is faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one true tree of God, and that is the church. What's the implications of this? Well, there's a lot of them. Let me just give you one. The implication Paul draws from this first massive truth is that the predominantly Gentile church should guard itself against arrogance toward the Jewish people. It's not the implication you thought was going to come, is it? He says, since this is true, since you, Gentile Christian, are part of Israel and them, Jewish non-believer, are not, don't be arrogant towards them. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. 
This is not a warning that the church has heeded particularly well throughout its history. The centuries of church history are plagued with examples of a violent anti-Semitism. From the Rhineland massacres of 1096 to the various exterminations of the Jews during the Crusades of the 12th and 13th centuries to blaming the Jews for the plague in the 14th century, which resulted in horrific atrocities committed against them throughout Europe to the genocide of the Jewish population in Poland in the 17th century, to the pogroms in Imperial Russia in the 18th and 19th centuries, to the Holocaust in the 20th century, although that wasn't connected to a particular church and probably should be considered a secular persecution. All of the rest of those persecutions I mentioned were done under the name and the banner of the church. Now, I hasten to add that those examples, such examples of genocidal racism, are not actually found in true churches nor among true Christians. You cannot be born of the Spirit and harbor unrepentant racism in your heart. 1 John 3.14 makes that clear. Whoever says he he loves God and hates his brother is a liar. If you don't love Jewish people, you don't love God. There will be no unrepentant, untransformed anti-Semites in heaven. Is that clear? But it is undeniable that many atrocities have been committed in the name of Christ and under the banner of the church. Why? Because it didn't listen to verse 18. It became arrogant toward the Jewish branches. And Paul's answer to such arrogance is to remember. Remember, he says, it's not you who support the root. It's the root that supports you. What's the root again? It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What ethnicity were they? They were Semites, Hebrews, Jews. Paul is warning the mostly Gentile church. He's warning the entirely Gentile church against turning the olive tree upside down and imagining that the branches support the root. No, he says. The church receives its nourishment. It receives its promises from the Jewish patriarchs through a Jewish people from whom came a Jewish Messiah. And furthermore, the final fruit to grace this concluded, culminated, glorious olive tree are going to be Jewish fruit. Verses 25 and 26 we'll get to next week. So there's no place for arrogance. There's no place for anti-Semitism. There's no place for the kind of Jewish hatred that has plagued the hearts of so many who have called themselves Christians and have been members of institutions that called themselves churches. There's no place for it. An anti-Semite is a non-Christian. And a church that despises Jewish people is a false church. True believers and true churches take the same stance toward the Jewish people that God does. What stance is that? Verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the patriarchs. You ought to love them for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus. Second truth of this passage is found in verses 19 and 20. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. 
They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. All right, so verse 19 gives voice to the kind of arrogance Paul's warning about in verse 18. I think the tone of verse 19 should probably be read something like this, right? If I were to paraphrase it. God was so jazzed about saving us Gentiles that he broke off the branches of Israel in order to make room for us. Well, not so fast, says Paul, who's already given one reason why such arrogance is unwarranted. He says, while it's true that Jewish branches were, by and large, broken off, it's true to say they were broken off so that I might be grafted in, is only, that's only half true. Because what does verses 11 to 15 teach? You remember from last week? The Jews were rejected in order that the Gentiles might be saved. Paul says, that's true. But you can't put a period there because that's not the end of his argument. The Jews were rejected in order that the Gentiles might be saved, but the Gentiles were saved in order that the Jews might be jealous and they were made jealous in order that they might be saved. Gentile salvation is at the bottom of that chain of purpose statements. You, God bless you, you're a means to an end. It would be arrogant then for Gentiles to make themselves the ultimate aim of God's redemptive purposes. But here Paul gives a second reason for Gentiles to not be arrogant toward the Jewish branches. He says, listen, it's not that the Jews were unworthy of God's salvation while the Gentiles were worthy. Worth has nothing to do with it. Belonging to the olive tree is not a matter of merit or of works. It's a matter of faith. Specifically, a faith rooted in God's purpose of election, which is by grace and not by works. Israel was cut off precisely because they wanted to relate to God on the basis of their own merit, their own works, their own worthiness. Chapter 10 and verse 3. Paul says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They didn't submit to it. God said, your righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. Here, trust in my son, and I'll give you his righteousness. And they said, no thanks. We're going to give you our righteousness according to the law. Romans 9.31, but Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. The Gentiles, on the other hand, attained the righteousness of God. Romans 9.30, why? Because they received it by faith. So Israel was cut off because of their unbelief. They fell in love with their own righteousness. The Gentiles were grafted in because of their faith. They knew they had no righteousness, so they freely received the righteousness of Christ by faith. Therefore, Paul says, Gentiles should not turn right around and begin to boast in their own worth. Or else, says Paul, God will cut them off too. If God was willing to cut off the natural branches, what makes them think he won't cut off the wild branches who begin to trade grace and faith for works and merit? The implication Paul draws from the second truth is that therefore the church should maintain an attitude of fear and reverence towards God rather than an attitude of arrogance and entitlement. Look again at verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his 
kindness. We must always remember why Israel was cut off and why we were grafted in. It's all laid out in Romans 9.30 to 10.4. We received the righteousness by faith in Christ, while the Jews rejected Christ and tried to establish their own righteousness on the basis of works of the law. Therefore, we should fear lest we fall into the same kind, the same pattern of unbelief. In other words, we should fear with all of our being legalism. The idea that God's favor and acceptance can be earned through your obedience or good works. That right standing before God is a matter of what we do for God rather than faith in what God has done for us in Christ. We should fear being cut off from unbel- or through unbelief, particularly that unbelief which refuses to receive the righteousness of God by faith and instead tries to achieve the righteousness of God through works. And it is so very subtle. This legalism, this works righteousness that comes in through the back door. This Christless, crossless Christianity. And we need to guard against it at every turn. A legalism which takes something that's not Christ, adds it to Christ, and says, if you do this, you'll really be accepted by God. You know what Paul says to that? It's something we should echo on a daily basis. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. I refuse to nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We need to fear the unbelief of legalism and continue in the kindness of That is the grace of God. Why? Because the only alternative is the severity of God, which cuts off those who do not believe. So First Baptist Nixa, Gentile church, for now, let's be grace people. Let's be people who fear one thing and one thing only, namely unbelief. Let's be people who love and treasure and continue in God's free and unmerited kindness towards sinners in Christ. And let's resist any legalizing impulse that wants to make our acceptance before God, our freedom in Christ, rest on any other foundation than the righteousness of God received through faith in Jesus. Paul makes one final claim in this passage and we'll draw one final implication. Verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So in the same way that Israel was cut off from the olive tree of the Abrahamic covenant because of unbelief and the Gentiles were grafted into the Abrahamic covenant through faith, even so Israel can, in verse 26, will be grafted back in if, when they turn to faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. Why? Well, Paul gives two reasons. First, God is able to graft them in again. It's not a question of his ability. It's not a question of his power, it's a question of his will, and he is willing. 
He is willing to graft them in again when they receive his son as their long-awaited Messiah. Second, however, still employing the olive tree metaphor, God is able to graft them in because if God acted contrary to nature by grafting you in, you wild olive shoots, into a cultivated olive tree, okay, now, I had to YouTube this. It's, it's the, actually the opposite of what happens in our Bora culture in, the, in, in Palestine. People don't do that. That's contrary to nature. You take cultivated olive trees, olive branches, and you, you uh, graft them into wild ones to help sustain those. That's not what God did. God did the opposite. Okay? He did what was against nature by, by grafting wild olive shoots into the cultivated olive tree. Then he's certainly able to do what is according to nature, namely to graft cultivated olive branches back into their original olive tree. So what's, what's he talking about? Well, think about it. When pagan Gentiles are converted to Christ, the gospel comes, as it were, out of nowhere. It has nothing to do with their worldview. Jesus has nothing to do with paganism. The way of Christ has nothing to do with the immoral pagan culture. But when Jews are converted to Christ, it is the fulfillment and culmination and consummation of their entire history, their entire culture, their entire religion. Jesus is the fulfillment of their sacrifices. His ethical demands are no different than those set forth in the moral law rightly understood In other words, in a manner of speaking, while it's unnatural for Gentiles to be converted to the Jewish Christ, it's perfectly natural for Jews to believe in Jesus. That's Paul's point. And the implication of this truth is one that we'll explore in greater detail next week. But essentially it means that we should therefore be hopeful in spite of Israel's present hostility and hardness towards the gospel. We should be hopeful of Israel's salvation. Now, as I said last week, and as I'll emphasize again next week, our posture, First Baptist Nix's posture towards the Jewish people should and must be one of love, longing for their salvation, and laboring towards that end. In other words, it ought to be the same posture as our master took towards them. Luke 19, 41, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Do you weep over the Jewish people? He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Or Matthew 23, 37, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me, not really. You won't see me again. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that day's coming. One day they will see him coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will weep over him as one weeps for an only son. Zechariah 12.10 But until that day comes, we the Gentile church must continue to love them. And must continue to long for them. And must continue to labor hopefully for their salvation. And to any unbeliever here this morning, I think this passage should serve as a joyful announcement to you of this. Think about this. You came in this morning with no thought of how can I become a Jew? That thought never passed through your head. How can I become a part of Israel? 
and you come in here this morning and some Gentile is standing up here saying, you can become a child of Abraham through faith and you can receive all of the promises that God promised Abraham. And you want to know why you should care about that? Because the only promises come through Abraham. The promise of a, of a place, a new heaven and a new earth in which there is no more mourning or crying or sickness or pain. And there's pardon for sin. Full reconciliation with God and you'll dwell in his presence and he will say over you, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. If you want that, you've got to become a Jew. A true Jew. You've got to be incorporated into Israel, the true Israel. And you can. Through faith in Jesus, the Jewish seed of Abraham, through whom all of the grace and all of the promises and all of the life are found. So come to him today. And you can say, like Protestant kids have been saying for 200 years, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord.